Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. The Whitney Humanities Center at Yale University presents a lecture by Andrew Gerber entitled, How the Mind Models the World, New Ideas from MRI Findings. This lecture was held in conjunction with the Schulman Seminar, Freud and Science in the 21st Century. I'm, I'm going to start by talking really about this idea of how we perceive and model the world. It may sound a little um, expansive uh, or grandiose an idea to try to take on, but it really is, is the, the most exciting part of, of the work that I'm going to talk about today. I usually save it for the end of my talk, but when we were planning today, William said, oh, we want something catchy, you know, something that appeals. So I moved it up to, to the beginning, and, and uh, you'll tell me how, how that works. I'm going to really talk about what I think is more the common sense folk psychology view, which I call spotlight and zoom theory, and I'll tell you what I mean by that, and then, and then talk about a schema theory, which is not certainly not uh, original to me, but is a synthesis of, of several other, um, uh, really many other uh, theorists and, and investigators over the decades, which I think is, is a framework and a language that's going to be useful for understanding the imaging data as well as its relevance to psychotherapy and psychoanalytic psychotherapy. I'll then finally, after I get to schema theory, I'll talk about three applications. I'm going to talk about a particular application to what we now call in cognitive neuroscience social cognition, this very general term to denote the things that go on in the mind and the brain when people interact. Um, then I'm going to apply it more specifically to, a, to an example of psychopathology, uh, in particular autism, where I do some of my clinical and some of my research work, and finally talk about uh, a potential aspect, uh, application to uh, mechanisms of action in psychotherapy, including dynamic psychotherapy. So let me start out by, by this idea of, of um, how we model the world, and, and, and let me tell it this way. So in our daily lives, in everything we do, we are confronted by an enormous amount of data that comes into our sensory apparatus. When you think about it from the visual system, from the auditory system, from the somatosensory system, even from the internal somatosensory system that is monitoring our organs and, and, and various feelings, right? And our mind, our brain, and I'm going to use those two interchangeably, have to have a way to deal with it. This is sort of common sense, right? So how do we do it? How do we take that enormous amount of data and narrow it down to something that we can act on, that we can process, that we can use. So here's an example. There's, I don't know if you guys, uh, I kind of like technology, and if, if you read about cameras these days, people are now starting to talk about gigapixel images because cameras have gotten so cheap and so good, digital cameras, that you can take numerous pictures of a scene and weave them together with enormous detail. And these go on the web and you can zoom in and see incredibly small things, right? It's the same idea, satellite imagery, but now it can be done sort of everywhere. So this is a gigapixel image I found on the web of Paris, right? Not too surprising, okay? Lots of detail. And if somebody said, perceive this scene, you would rightfully say to me, well, for what purpose, right? How do I perceive it? Do you mean I count every window? Do I, do I name every building? Do I look for some big things like, like um, the Eiffel Tower, like downtown? Um, you'd want to know why, because otherwise it's a meaningless thing to perceive this, right? So what's a conventional view? A conventional view would say, well, let me, let me be more specific. Let me say, I want you to identify the Arc de Triomphe in this picture. Now, I'm not enough of a Parisian scholar to know where it would be, but you, you have a little hint here because they, they nicely put some 
eyes designating it here. So this over here is the Arc de Triomphe. You probably can't see it, I can't see it, and I'm standing right next to it. But if you wanted to, you could put a mental spotlight on that image, okay? You could sort of gray everything else out and focus on this particular area of the picture. And then you could zoom into it. And I'm using sort of conventional language, right? That's what zooming in on that little dot looks like. Okay, there it is. There's the Arc de Triomphe, okay? You spot, you used a spotlight and then you did a zoom. When you think about that, you could make the argument that that's something we do all the time. I walk into to a room, there's many people there, I have to decide who to talk to, I see William, I know him, so I screen out everybody else, I put my spotlight on him, I walk closer to him or I focus my gaze on him and we have a conversation. Now, of course, I have to do it in not just the visual representation, but in, in sensory, in uh, auditory as well. Everybody's talking, for example. This is a famous problem in cognitive science called the cocktail party problem. How do I hear William and not hear all the other voices in the room? And we do it with our attentional system. And the conventional thought is similar to this, right? That I hear all the voices at first. If somebody says, listen to the party, I hear just a big noise. And they say, now listen to William. And I filter out, using my mind, the other voices, because I know something about his voice, because I can see his lips moving, right? Because I can focus in on him, and then I start interpreting what it is that he's actually saying. And we're remarkably good at that, that our mental apparatus is really designed to do that better than, than pretty much any computer uh, 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 yet developed. Probably not for long, but at least now we're better at that, okay? So what's, so what's the big deal? Isn't that just the answer of how we do things? I'm going to argue that's not the way our mind works because there's a few problems with that system that really are fatal to it, if that were the model. The first is the extent to which it only gives us partial information in a way that I would say evolutionarily, and I'm not a big fan of evolutionary psychology, I'm not going to justify arguments that way, but I still think that way sometimes, it would be dangerous if what we did was that spotlight and zoom thing. Because when you're zoomed out, you can't see the detail, right? When I showed you that big picture, you, you couldn't make heads or tails of it. And when you're zoomed in, you can't see the big picture. So if there's something dangerous happening at the detail level and you're zoomed out, and if there's something dangerous happening at the big picture level when you're zoomed in, you're in trouble, right? So a, a system that's really gonna work for us has gotta be a little bit more clever than that, that it doesn't dichotomize between these two levels. The other problem is it requires quite a bit of specificity of information. Now, in the examples I gave you, that was okay. I said to you, I want the Arc de Triomphe. If you know, if you know uh, Paris, you know generally where to look for it. You go right to it, and you screen everything else out. You walk into a party, you want to talk to William, you find him, and that's fine. So you've got to know where to zoom. You have to know how much to zoom, and you have to know how long to stay zoomed in before you come back out again, right? That would all be necessary in that model. So are there any alternatives that are more flexible than this, that we could use to navigate our world in a way that, that wouldn't require it? I'm going to argue that the term schema theory uh, is really the best term to describe this more flexible model that's better than spotlight and zoom. And in fact, that schema theory in one name or another has existed uh, in scholarship and in science and in various other fields for, for many, many years, just without a sense that it's a single uh, coherent theory, which I think it actually is. Let me start with the way I think of schema theory. And this was on my title slide. I can't resist. I am a New Yorker. So, so uh, 
Um, and so, so this is this is the way I think of schema theory, right? So this is this is an old um, New Yorker cover from 1976, and it was called something like "A New Yorker Looks West from Ninth Avenue." And the joke, and I imagine most of you have seen this before, is that up close, if, if I can sort of take some of the humor out just by explaining it very carefully, there's tons of detail, right? You can see every person, every street, every truck, every car, right? Ninth Avenue, 10th Avenue, West Side Drive. And once you cross the Hudson River, things start to get much more vague. New Jersey is a kind of strip of land, right? My six-year-old daughter calls it the land across the sea. That's what she thinks of New Jersey. Um, and then once you get past New Jersey, the detail gets even more sparse still, right? You see Chicago, you see Kansas City, Washington, D.C. But sorry, the, you know, the Midwesters in the audience, there's very little detail from, from most of the Midwest, very little detail, actually pretty much none from the South, right? And then you get all the way to the Pacific Ocean and across, and remember this was the 70s, so these were where people's attention was focused in those days. You see, it's a little hard to read from where you are, China, Japan, and Russia, right? Everything else has been screened out. Now, you can make fun of a New Yorker for saying this is a ridiculously um, uh, um, narrow view of the world, but you can also understand why this is an adaptive view of the world. Because up close, you have the detail you need to survive in New York City. If you don't know the detail of where the cars are and where uh, the street corners are, and you try to cross Ninth Avenue, you'll die, right? So that level of detail is necessary, and in fact, you don't need the detail in the rest of the world at that particular moment that you're standing on Ninth Avenue because so much of your life is focused on the living in New York City. But of course, what's funny about this is that New Yorkers do this all the time. And what we really should be doing is moving this view, being flexible in this view of the world, depending on what we're doing and depending on where we are. So for example, now we got a little south in there. This, this cover's been ripped off many times by many people. Here's the Atlanta view of the world, right, which is substantially different, right? It's got the detail of downtown Atlanta and, and the Mississippi River up close and much, a more, much more schematic view a little bit farther away. Here's a cover of The Economist magazine from a few years ago. This is how China sees the world. Great detail in Beijing, the Imperial Plaza, Tiananmen Square, the Pacific Ocean, and a much more schematic view of the United States and the rest of the world. Can also be used, of course, to, to lampoon people. This was when George Bush was in office. This was called George Bush's view of the world. And you saw Washington, D.C., but mostly corporations, NRA, Stock Exchange, Fox News, and then the Great Republican Vote Basket, and then Pacific Buffer Zone, and then some of, some of the unfortunate wars. Um, so, so that was obviously my came in, and my favorite of all is Sarah Palin's view of the world. If you can read that, <laughs> Alaska everywhere you find it. Okay, so the idea being that there are many different perspectives on the world, and, a and there's no right perspective, but what there is is a need for flexibility, that as you move around and do different things, you schematize some areas of the world, and you detail-orient others. So it's not a fundamentally different perspective than back to that spotlight zoom, but it's a more flexible version of spotlight zoom where rather than only focus on this one thing, you at least have a schematic. The best example I know today is if you, if you guys use, and I'm sure you do, Google Maps, right? In Google Maps, if you pull out, you see big structures. If you pull in, you see detail. Now, you don't see them at the same time, but at least you know by zooming in and out, you can get to any level of detail you want. And that's the way we need to see the world, I would argue. 
So who's written about this and in, and in what context? I think the, the, the farthest back that I dare go, uh, and, this, and I learned about this in, in a lecture hall not unlike this one on old campus, uh, LC, when I took my first philosophy course, Immanuel Kant up there, uh, talked about schemata. He talked about different kinds of schemata. His emphasis was a little different. He was much more interested in this contrast between more abstract notions of truth and more empirical notions that are actually being perceived. But he had the notion that you had to link the two. He talked about these things called transcendental schemata that enable us to take big picture things and detail-oriented things, or what he would call more perceptual-based things and more conceptual or idea-based things, and bring them together in a useful way. Jean Piaget, the, the, the famous Swiss developmental psychologist here, famously talked about schemata or schemas in development. And he talked about assimilation, the process by which you took the outside world and interpreted it from within your perspective. That was making the world fit what you were looking for. And accommodation, that is changing your internal schemas to fit what you're experiencing through the world. And his idea was that in development, we were constantly going back and forth in a flexible, healthy development between those two, a very appealing notion, right? And so far, I haven't talked about any psychoanalysts, and I won't for a little while. Frederick Bartlett, get back to the UK connection, uh, the first professor of experimental psychology at Cambridge, um, famously wrote a book called Remembering. And in that, he outlines a theory for memory that is largely based on this schemata. He says that in order to remember things, we have to have a framework within which to put it. So for example, he did a famous experiment it's back in the 30s and 40s where he would tell people stories and he would stick in a few kind of anomalous details right, that didn't fit in the great picture. And then he tested people's memory of those stories. And sure enough, they remembered the parts of the story that were consistent with the overall themes, and they would tend to forget the pieces of the story that were anomalous. Now, you could imagine it had gone, gone going another way, which is if they were so anomalous that they stuck out, that might be another way to remember them, but we'll put that aside for a moment. And he really tied it to this cognitive theory of memory. And then finally, most recently, Lawrence Barcelou, and I'm just fascinated by why he put a picture of himself on his website with a phone in his hand. I have no idea. But, this, but uh, Barcelou, who, who is a wonderful cognitive scientist at Emory, um, writes about something he calls perceptual symbol systems. It's a little bit of a mouthful, um, but it's a really elegantly designed theory that he then marries to computational neuroscience, where he thinks about the way we take our various per perceptions of the world, right? vision, audition, uh, internal perception, uh, somatosensory, and we use this multimodal set of inputs to construct what he calls either schemas or frames, which are these perspectives with which to see, perceive, and remember the world. It's quite an elegant kind of computational uh, um, extension of this overall idea. Okay? So, that, so to me, this is a powerful theory. To me, this is, I haven't shown you any data yet, but this is a theory that, right off the bat at least, appeals to me uh, both in a, in a, in a straight-up way. It's, it's, more, it's more advantageous than something uh, like, like the Spotlight and Zoom theory, but also appeals to me as, with my clinical intuition about how people perceive things and the mistakes they make. All right, and now we're going to get into that conversation. So let's now shift a little bit, and you'll see where it's going to come back. But I'm going to talk about about social cognition. You say, well, what does schemas have to do with social cognition? Well, when you think about the various things that we perceive and have to act on, it seems to me, as a 
therapists, as a psychiatrist, that one of the most complicated things we ever do is to perceive social scenes. There's so much going on in a social scene. There's so many things to consider that you have to have a shorthand to do it. You don't have time, right? I, up here, don't have the time to think individually about every one of you, what you're thinking, what you look like, what you're doing, what I know about you, what I don't, and calculate out of that what I should be saying and doing. I have to approximate. It's the only way I can actually sort of get on with things. And you can think of most social situations as having to do with that. Now, people write a lot about social cognition, and I think sometimes there's confusion because they mean many different things by social cognition. And so I want to kind of put that on the table right from the start. I'm not trying to describe everything about social cognition. That would be a fool's errand, I think a task that no one person could do. You will see people writing about social cognition, whether within psychology or neurobiology, and they'll be writing about it from different perspectives, all the way from the most basic components. In other words, in order to walk into a social scene, you've got to have working memory and attention. You've got to be able to feel emotions and to process faces, all right? Um, I'm going to skip over that one. Uh, more advanced concepts like attachment, empathy. You heard Linda and, and, and Helena talk about that last time. Theory of mind and sympathy, metacognition, mindfulness, reflective function or emotional regulation, all terms that I think of as being fairly high level, complex processes that involve multiple different parts of the mind. So where do you start if you want to study social cognition? I don't think there's any answer. I think you start where you want to start, but, you, but you're very clear about what you're tackling and what you're not. So I'm going to tackle one particular thing, and that is this notion that I consider somewhere around the middle of the list called self and other representations. Okay? That is, how do we hold in our minds, in our brains, an idea about who some other person is, maybe people, if, if we can get that far, and how do they hold us in their minds, right? That's what I mean by self and other representations. Oh, and by the way, how do we think of ourselves as well, okay? So you can see that this might now relate back to, to schemata. And now, fortunately, because the only way you can do any of this work is by building on other people's work and finding that, that things are at the right stage, I get to borrow from a, a fantastic researcher at NYU named Susan Anderson. Susan's been writing for about 15 years on a topic that she calls transference, by the way. Uh, I, often, I prefer not to call it that. I prefer schema for reasons that we'll talk about. I think psychoanalysis, to some extent, has been um, hobbled by its use of, of terms that sound specific but are not, that actually different people use in different ways. And you end up arguing with people over semantics, which, which uh, wastes a lot of time, in my opinion, in, in psychoanalysis. So, but listen, she's stuck with it, and, and for that reason, I at least want to acknowledge it. She asks the following question. How are everyday interpersonal relations influenced by past relationships with significant others? And you probably have a feeling that the answer for me is going to be, it's got to do with schemas of old relationships, that we use old schemas, right, expectations about how people are, in particular the significant others in our lives, to predict and to interpret the world that we're perceiving. So here's the experiment that she designed, and we modified slightly for the scanner. She's not an imager, but she's been our collaborator as we adapted this for the scanner. When I say we, I'm referring mostly to me and my mentor, Brad Peterson, another former Yaley who was here at the Child Study Center uh, for formative parts of his training before coming to Columbia. Um, so, so let me tell you about this experiment. It consists of two sessions. In, the subjects or participants in this experiment 
are misled to believe that the two sessions have nothing whatsoever to do with each other. Okay? So we'll call them session one and session two, but as far as they're concerned, they're two unrelated sessions separated by many months. Okay? In the first session, we invite these folks in. Okay? In the first experiment, I'm going to show you the data from. These are all healthy college students from Columbia. And we ask them to identify four significant others in their lives. People typically pick their parents, sibling if they have one, two siblings, uh, uh, an early boyfriend or girlfriend, a close friend, a grandparent or an aunt or an uncle or something like that, right? And about each one of these four significant others, which we have them name, we ask them to provide 10 short descriptive sentences that say something good or positive about that person and 10 short descriptive sentences that say something negative or bad about that person, okay? We have rules about these sentences. They can't be more than six words. They can't use any completely identifying information. They can't have gender in them, right? But they have to be relatively unique. They can't be something you'd say about everybody in your life. They have to be something that's fairly specific to that person, okay? So we get 10 and 10 for four people. That's a total of 80 descriptors. Actually harder than you think because when, if you try it sometime and sit down and pick your four people and say those 10 sentences, you'll quickly get frustrated, I imagine. But it's something that, that actually in, in psychotherapy or in psychoanalysis, you end up doing all the time. So, uh, so something that, that made sense to me, we actually do a kind of clinical interview with them that elicits these sentences. That's most of this, this session. We also say to them, here's a list of about 100 or so words that we, we're going to supply you with. Pick 25 about each of these people, and they can be overlapping, that are not true, but they're not the opposite of true either. They're irrelevant, okay? And, and we want you to check off 25 for each one of these four people. And then finally, and I'm going to spend the least time on this, it's one of the other control conditions, we're going to give you a list of 80 famous people and give me a short sentence about each one, just one about each one of these people. It's remarkably hard, no insult intended, I'm sure you wouldn't have this problem, but at least in New York, to find 80 famous people that everybody knows. You'd think that that would be easy, but in fact, uh, we're always surprised who they don't know. Um, but, but in fact, we do get these 80 sentences from all our participants. Okay, that's the first session. We send them home, tell them the experiment is over, done. Okay. A few months later, we call these participants back. We use a different person to call them, we take them to a different building, we call the experiment something else, our forms all look different, we do go to every extent to let them not figure out that these are connected. And in fact, we draw from interest psychology because often these people are participating in lots of experiments as I'm sure you guys do here. I remember doing it over not far from here in, uh, in the psychology building. Um, so they've, in the interim, between the first and second session, they probably participated in two or three other experiments anyway and they don't make any connections. In this second session, we tell them you're going to learn about 12 different individuals, real people, but people you've never met before, strangers to you. And we tell them, we describe to them these 12 individuals by giving them um, uh, 20 descriptors about each one of these 12 people. Now, unbeknownst to them, they fall into three categories, all randomly mixed together so with all new names. They can't figure it out. Four of those people resemble the four significant others that they told us about. Name is different, and we don't use all 20 descriptors. We only use half of them, but we pick the most pertinent ones from both positive and negative, and then we, we throw away the others, and we mix in some irrelevance to kind of fool them a little bit. Okay? But four of them remind them of their significant others. Four of them are constructed in exactly the same way, except 
They're not about their significant others. They're about a different participant who presumably they don't know. So the idea being that if William and I were both in the experiment, we were both participants, I would learn about a significant, a, a, a stranger, quote unquote, who resembled my mother. I'm presuming that, that William picked his mother too. I would learn about a stranger that resembles his mother. And he, unbeknownst to either of us, would learn about a stranger who resembles his mother and one that resembles my mother, right? So even though we're learning the same stimuli, and you're going to start to realize this is part of the design of a good fMRI experiment, is having stimuli that are very similar, if not identical, but which mean something different, right? The personal relevance should be exactly reversed in the two of us, and we're actually referred to as a yoked controls. Uh, he's my control, I'm his control. That's what we call by yoked controls. So that's the second set of four, four and four, and it's eight now. And then what's the final set of four? Well, we want to make sure that if we are going to be measuring any kind of phenomenon here that's specific to my schemata, my representations of significant others, that it's not just about language, that it's not just about that I kind of recognize the words that I use as being the kinds of ways I describe things, even outside of awareness, given that we fooled them successfully. So what we do is we take that list of 80 famous people who I described in the former uh, session, and we scramble it up and make a new person, a composite person, out of a random set of 20 of those descriptors. And we also teach me, so four of these quote unquote strangers that I learn are those. They all have new names. Those of you who remember Pat on Saturday Night Live will remember you know, that we even keep them gender ambiguous. All the names we use are, are gender ambiguous because we don't want to give them any hints as to who these people are. Right? What do we do then? So this is what it looks like in the scanner while they're learning about these people. So it's, it's all very carefully structured, and you guys have probably read some uh, fMRI experiments already. You want to control the intervals and the time extremely carefully so that, so that when you do your data analysis, as William correctly said, it's extremely important to do this in a careful, controlled way. Otherwise, you can get a lot of gibberish, and you can also overinterpret things. So for four seconds, they see a stimulus, which is one of the sentences they're learning about one of these 12 individuals. And then for one to three seconds, in a controlled fashion, they just see the name. And they click a, a button just to make sure that they haven't fallen asleep and that they're paying attention. Okay. So once that's done, and they've learned about the individuals, we actually do six and six rather than all 12, but that's a detail. We now say, we're going to test you. Okay. So what are, we, what are you going to test us with? Well, we're going to see how well you remember the descriptions we just taught you about these 12 individuals. And we do it the following way. We show them a sentence, four seconds for the sentence, one to three seconds not, and now you get a chance to rate that sentence. And you rate it on a scale from one to six. One meaning you are positive you were not taught that sentence about that person. Six meaning you're positive you were taught that sentence about that person. And two to five if you're not sure. After all, you're being taught a lot of things, 12 times 20 or 240 descriptors you're being taught. We intentionally do that to make it hard because if they remembered everything perfectly, we'd have no experiment. So we make it hard for them. Okay. Now why are we going to all this trouble? Why are we uh, uh, teaching them and testing them? Because there's, a, there's an hypothesis under this, which, which if, you're, if you're following along with the schemata, is going to start to hopefully crystallize in your, in, your, in your brain right now. If it's true that we use social schemata to perceive the world, those, and those social schemata are individual to us. That is, they are not, we don't all use the same schemata. 
but we use ones that are built from our own life experiences, then one would expect that one's perception and memory of these stimuli is influenced by whether or not they come consistently with our schemata. Back to the kind of experiment Bartlett did. More specifically, we do the following, and this is called a lure. We show them sentences about strangers, which we did not actually teach. The correct answer is one. But what we do to make it a lure is we take that sentence from the significant other that this stranger was made to resemble. Okay, So it's a, it's a little complicated in this diagram, but I'll give you a concrete example. So let's say, all right, here we taught a participant that Jan, who unbeknownst to them resembles their father, is a strong person, and we taught them Jan has amazing blue eyes. These are actual descriptors, by the way, that were provided by subjects. Okay. I'm sorry, back up one second. These are both descriptors that they provided. We only taught them Jan has amazing blue eyes. We did not teach them Jan is a strong person. But that's something they said about their father, and Jan has been made to resemble their father. We then show them both sentences with the question about the lure. That is the thing highlighted in yellow here. Did we teach you Jan is a strong person? If we're right about the schemata, they're going to be more likely to, to make a mistake and to think that we did in fact teach them Jan is a strong person when the correct answer is we did not because they're fooled by the association to the schemata. Now you might be tempted to call this a false memory uh, and in fact I think at some point Susan even calls it that. I hesitate there because it's not an all or nothing phenomenon. It's not that when you see Jan as a strong person you're positive you were taught that but it's that you're less sure you weren't taught it. Okay. Let me give you one more example just to kind of crystallize this in your minds. Back to our example, William and I are in the same study. I'm taught uh, about a person who resembles my own mother, and then I see a sentence that came from my description of my mother, but I was not taught about this stranger. I'm going to be more likely to think, hmm, maybe I was taught that. Whereas the same phenomenon should not be true in a different stranger who resembles William's mother because his mother doesn't have that same salience to me. It hasn't formed that same kind of schema, schema schemata that, that I use to interpret the world. All right? So what's wonderful about this experiment, and this is, of course, the great part about science, as I said, is we knew it was going to work before we did it because Susan's been doing it for 15 years and it always worked for her. So we did things as closely as we possibly could in the way she did it. We had her there to make sure, because we didn't want to do all this work and spend all that money and then find out we couldn't get the same effect. And sure enough, we duplicated the behavioral effect that she got. That is, we found this lure effect. Lures were more likely to show higher uh, recognition scores, even though they weren't taught, than when they were referred to somebody who resembled a significant other, than a lure that came from a yoked control significant other, that is another participant who doesn't have that same personal relevance. But then the fun began, because unlike Susan and unlike anybody, we'd had them in the scanner the whole time, and we were looking at the parts of their brain that were differentially active during, at different points of this experiment. So um, let me, I'm going to start by, by um, with some basic comparisons, show you a little bit more sophisticated comparisons, and then maybe in the discussion if you want to ask me more details about that, I'm happy to do so or tomorrow in class. So let's start with a very simple question, which is what is the, what 
is the difference between how the brain looks when you are learning about somebody who resembles a significant other and when you're learning about someone who doesn't resemble a significant other, okay? Now remember, the participants are fooled. We carefully debrief them at the end. We give them questionnaires and tests and all this, and we try to make sure, we try to find out if there was any hint that they figured things out, and we were very good. Nobody figured it out, uh, except one or two examples where we gave it away and we took those subjects out. Um, so so we, we successfully fooled people. So when you ask them what's the difference, they say none. They're all strangers to me. I don't know any of these people. In fact, we even asked them how much they liked everybody. Everybody got about the same scores too because in fact we balanced the positive and the negative and we made it very simple. But lo and behold, their brains look different. Now this, remember, is, is in fMRI, don't be fooled. fMRI can be a lot like phrenology at times. People can get all hocus pocus. It's not my intention here. This is a structural image of the brain that has overlain on top of it some nice colors. We don't take pictures that look like this out of the scanner. It's actually a very hard thing, and it takes a lot of repetitions and a lot of data processing and statistics before we can figure out what the significant differences are. But what you see here in yellow from three different angles, this is seeing the brain from the side, what's called a sagittal view. This is the brain from the front. This is what's called a coronal view. And this is the brain sliced parallel to the floor, or what's called an axial or horizontal view. You see the same, mostly the same structure highlighted in all three. And that's a pretty famous area of the brain. It's called the subgenual anterior cingulate. This is the anterior cingulate, uh, a part of the brain that's thought to be involved in emotion. And this is a particular part of it. Happens to be the same part that uh, neurosurgeons found in people with intractable depression. You can put an electrode into and make people feel better. It isn't done very often for obvious reasons, but a, a region of the brain that's been associated with mood, with affect regulation, um, and even to some extent with depression. Now why is that showing up when we're looking at recognition of uh, significant people who resemble our significant others and people who don't? Even though we're not depressed, these, are, these participants have been screened, they don't have depression, they don't even feel differently about these people when you ask them. Well, the answer is we don't know. But what a fascinating thing to start to explore, that there are differences in the brain that are manifested in this way. Let's ask a slightly more complicated question now. Instead of just globally looking at the difference, let's look at the difference over time. And let's say, well, when you think about it, when you're learning about a person, it's a gradual process. It's not that from the very first sentence, you know exactly who that person is. You can have situations like that, but in general, that's not what we're looking for. We're looking for a gradual process, that the more and more you hear about somebody and the more and more they resemble somebody you know, the more and more you have a feeling uh, about them that, that there's something familiar, that you know something about them, even if that's outside of awareness. So we took that same comparison of looking at people who are, resembled our significant others and who don't, but now we put the time element in and we said, to what parts of the brain are showing increasing activity over the course of this learning process? And what, if any, parts of the brain are showing decreasing activity as you learn about somebody who resembles versus somebody who doesn't? And lo and behold, we got a remarkable localization for fMRI experiments that was localized to two different parts of the temporal cortex. Temporal cortex is one, one of the lobes of the brain, a lobe that's, uh, that's a complicated lobe, implicated in lots of different things. But we found this differentiation between the anterior and the posterior. And it's color-coded the following way. The area in red in the posterior part of the temporal cortex um, is, an, is showing increasing activity the more and more you learn about somebody who you're familiar with 
as compared to learning about someone who you're not familiar with. But at the same time, the anterior poles, also part of the temporal cortex, but at the opposite side of it, are showing decreasing activity. So it raises the question, and these are early days in these experiments, this is data that we're still in the process of getting published, is there some kind of a switching mechanism in the temporal cortex that says there are times in our lives when we say, hey, I know what's going on here. Um, I'm going to use these old representations to inform what I'm doing. And I'm not going to worry about the details. I'm going to, in fact, maybe even shut off the details. That's what the blue might be. By the way, that's just another view from the front as opposed to from the side. Um, I'm going to shut off the details because I know what's going on. This person's familiar to me, right? But then you could imagine other times when you say, wait a second, I don't know this person. I'm not going to use past representations because they're not reliable. I'm going to pay attention to the details. And does that harken back to some of that differentiation I was talking about in terms of schemata right at the beginning? Okay, well, another interesting thing comes out. It's not that these areas of the temporal cortex are brand new to neuroscience. They're regions that have been talked about in terms of social cognition for a long time. And in fact, experiments from Zahn and Zilbovicius, who summarized a whole bunch of experiments, talk about social representations in this part of the brain in the temporal cortex without a lot of specificity because it's early days within all of social affective neuroscience. Uh, but having something to do with it. In fact, parts of those posterior area overlapped with something called the fusiform cortex, which has been thought of as, uh, you guys have probably heard the term, the fusiform face area, or having something to do with how we recognize faces. Only we've known now in recent years that it's not just for faces, it's all sorts of expertise that that posterior part of the temporal cortex has some role in. Of course, the brain's very complicated. I don't mean to suggest that whole big swaths of the brain do the same thing. It's way more complicated than that, but we're doing the best we can to start this process of localization. So let me move off the first experiment, because I don't have a, a lot of time left, and I want to just show you a couple other ideas. Let's talk about psychopathology, and in particular, let's talk about autism. Well, we've had this idea for some time, right, that autism, in both sort of popular imagination as well as in, in the field, is associated with social difficulties, right? But it turns out that we've known for a long time as well that it's not just social difficulties. In fact, there's a very nice theory called the weak central coherence theory. It's mostly been developed by Uta Frith in London and her student Frankie Happy, um, which says that individuals with autism uh, or autism spectrum disorder or Asperger's, we won't get into the, the politics of those distinctions right now, um, have a harder time seeing big picture things but an easier time, and are actually better than so-called typicals or non-autistic individuals, at seeing details. And there's a couple experiments that demonstrate this quite convincingly. One is this old thing called the embedded figures test. It goes back to the 60s. And the task goes something like this. You get shown a single image and a more complicated image, and you're asked, can you find this within this? Is it there or not? And it turns out that individuals on the spectrum as long as their IQs are controlled for, that is their at least normal IQ, or we're, we're measuring people across the board with the same IQ, they are better at this than typicals. That is, because it's a detail-oriented kind of thing, they can find those details rather quickly. Here's another one. It's called the Navone task, okay, in which you make a big letter out of little letters. 70s. And the task goes something like, press the key as, see, as soon as you see the letter C, or as soon as you see the letter S. 
And it turns out that individuals on the spectrum are faster than typicals at seeing the little letter, vision accounted for, and slower at seeing the big letter, and typicals are reversed. We're better at seeing the big letter and slower at seeing the little letter. All right? Fascinating difference that on the surface of it have nothing to do with social cognition, which is where autism gets its name. Well, maybe they are linked. In other words, maybe what we're talking about in terms of schemata uh, go all the way down to the perceptual level and dictate to what extent do we pay attention to details versus big picture, but they're also true in terms of our social interactions as well. That is, we see big picture things and we need to see them socially because if you asked me to see some uh, person standing in front of me as a compilation of all their details, I'd be standing there all day. They're too complicated. There are too many pieces to them, right? But if I see them as an entity, as I see them as a gestalt, as a single schema representative of a, a man of about this age or a woman of about this age, that's, that's a shorthand that I can use at least in the moment to get me through the interaction, right? And people with autism, the idea is, have a much harder trouble with that. And it's part of why social interactions are stressful, are anxiety provoking, and then often avoided because they stir up. Now, I do not mean to suggest, suggest that autism is this homogeneous, uniform population. It's clearly not. Um, but I think we need a framework, at least, to start to understand where the range of difficulties are. And it's surprisingly lacking, given, given how much uh, attention it's getting in the field. And I think the schema theory has a nice uh, approach. Uh, incidentally, this is also from Zilba Vicius in Paris, um, the areas that have been identified as being different in terms of activity, these, this is a compilation of a whole set of MRI scans, PET scans, and SPECT scans, are very close to the areas that we are already seeing implicated in the schemas of normal college students based on the Anderson task. So another kind of exciting thing. Now here's another thing we've done. We've put about nine high-functioning ASD subjects in the scanner already and done our experiment, our Anderson paradigm, and lo and behold, that gradient that we saw before not only do we not see it, to some extent we see the opposite of it. This region in the back that was previously red because it was increasing while they were learning about people who resembled a significant other is now decreasing. I have no idea why, right? Is that learned? Is that developmental? Is that wired? Um, but a fascinating differentiation. Early days again, that was, the other study was about 40 individuals. This is only nine so far. We're waiting to do more of these. Um, but, but something very exciting that may help us understand the brain in autism. Right, so this, this is the typicals, this is the autism. See the difference? How the red now becomes blue? Okay. Okay. One last one, I'll say very quickly. This might have implications for other areas of psychopathology as well. So we talked about uh, autism, but you can imagine that schemas are such a basic way of interacting that it's not too hard to think about other types of psychopathology that may have difficulties in other directions. So for example, take personality disorders, all right? Um, when we think about people with personality disorders, in particular the dramatic or borderline personality disorders, we often think of people we know who get into their head the way as someone's going to be and then won't change their mind. They meet somebody, they say one thing to them, and then they are convinced beyond any shadow of a doubt the person hates them or the person loves them. Either case, it makes for not a good situation long term. It's not very adaptive. So maybe, if we go back now to autism, we should really be thinking of it not just as local, but, but remember I talked about this, this need to be flexible, this need to move back and forth between what's right in front of you and what's far away, right, in the New Yorker picture. Maybe in autism the problem is we focus on what's detailed and we're rigid about it. 
we have a harder time seeing the big picture. And maybe in certain personality disorders like borderline, it's the opposite, that we fixate on the big picture thing, the gestalt, the idea of this as a person, to the extent that we don't see the details, right? Because we're rigid in this other way. So they could both be disorders of rigidity, but stuck in different places. We actually have some data to suggest in our normal sample, we don't have patients with borderline personality yet, um, but within our normal sample, when we measure sort of symptoms of borderline personality disorder, that those at this end uh, actually show more use of schemas, and interestingly, they do worse on this task called the reading of the mind and the eyes task. That is, is a, a famous task for autism where you show them eyes and ask them to figure out what the, what the feeling is here. People with autism are lousy at this, and interestingly enough, it turns out that borderlines can be bad at this as well. They get stuck. They think they know, and they're wrong, okay? And there's some evidence to support that that's uh, associated with this heavy schema use, okay? So now let me, let me just say the last and most speculative piece before I stop. So what does all this have to do with psychotherapy, right? I, I really haven't even talked much about psychotherapy. Now, there's a famous teaching in psychotherapy that many of you have heard, and it's one that depresses a lot of psychotherapy researchers, but you can't get away without mentioning it, which is that, that globally, for a long time, we've talked about the dodo bird effect. And it, it's a quote from uh, Alice in Wonderland that was used by Rol Saul Rosenzweig in the 30s, where he said, everybody has won and all must have prizes, by which he meant that when you look at psychotherapies that have different theories of mechanism of action, CBT versus dynamic psychotherapy, IPT versus uh, CBT, IPT versus dynamic, um, Rogerian therapy, any therapy, if you compare two well-designed, well-meaning treatments, they tie, right? Even if their theoretical predictions are quite different. That's very frustrating for somebody like me who spends, you know, most of their life in training and has spent all these years and hundreds of thousands of dollars training to, in one mode of psychotherapy. And then you think, well, wait a second, what if it doesn't matter? Uh, I could have been a CBT therapist and maybe that would have been quicker and I'd get the same results. Nobody likes that idea, of course. But of course, part of why we shouldn't like that idea is because it oversimplifies things. It's not that all therapies are created equal. It's really that all therapies that are done well and carefully get the same effect. So this is a paper we published in the American Journal of Psychiatry a couple years ago where we looked at 94 randomized control trials of dynamic psychotherapy. Maybe we'll talk more about this tomorrow. The idea that there are no randomized control trials of psychodynamic psychotherapy is wrong. It's kind of a bizarre myth that's out there. There's actually 94 of them, okay? Um, but what's interesting about them, and I'll complain plenty about the 94, is that they divide neatly into two groups. Those that compare dynamic therapy against another good therapy, in which case 47 out of 63 times, it's a tie, okay? And the 40 that compare dynamic against something intentionally lousy, a kind of straw man, in which 27 out of 40 times dynamic therapy wins. Now it turns out that the evidence for CBT is of exactly the same type, exactly the same pattern. Compare CBT against something active, you tie. You compare it against something lousy, you win. The only difference there is they have about 1,000 studies and we have only about 100, but that's, but that's for tomorrow. So what does that teach us? I don't think it teaches us that all therapies are created equal, but what it teaches us that there may be mechanisms of action that underlie our therapies that are actually more similar than different. And people who've gone through different therapies or done different therapies, and nowadays we get taught all sorts of therapies, which I think is wonderful, you realize that there are some factors that underlie this. I'm going to mention three in particular because one of them matches up with our experimental data. 
One of them, I think, there's a lot of evidence to support is what's called exposure and response prevention. And that is the, the basic idea that if you're afraid of something and you don't want to think about it, you avoid it and it's causing you problems in your life because you're avoiding it so much, and some nice person comes along and says, here, you got to face it eventually, right? Let's do it gently, let's do it slowly, nothing terrible is going to happen, we'll stop as soon as you get feel too bad, whether that's an elevator phobia, whether that's uh, uh, being in public phobia, or whether that's talking about a part of your childhood that was very unpleasant and you tend not to like to think about, there's a certain amount of facing it, doing it, and realizing it's not so terrible anymore, okay? We do that in CBT, we call it behavioral exposure, emotional exposure, but we do it in psychoanalysis too. We just call it something different. We call it making the unconscious conscious. We call it, it's when somebody sits in the room and we say, listen, I think you're avoiding the, the fact that you're really angry at your roommate. No, I love my roommate, they're perfect. Well, but then why did you uh, make all that noise last night and then you pretended it was an accident? Oh, you know, that's something you do in dynamic psychotherapy. It's a kind of exposure, right? Let me say the second one, which is the one most relevant. Oh, by the way, there's actually quite a bit of evidence, uh, brain evidence now, that, that the centers of the brain related to exposure and response prevention show activity differences after psychotherapy. And it's true for CBT. And we have a couple studies underway right now where we show it's true for dynamic therapy as well. Okay. So I don't think of this as a very specific mechanism. It's an important mechanism. It's got to be done well. But, um, but it's, it's a common mechanism. Now here is relationship modeling. This goes back to the schema idea. Let's say you do come in with these schemata, these patterns for how you relate to the world. What if they don't work? What if the way you learn to relate to your parents, to your siblings, to your significant others early in life were developed because that's the way you had to relate to them back then. It's the way they related to each other. It's the way you survived in your family. But you get into a new environment, college, in your job, in your, in your new family, and suddenly these don't work anymore. It's usually not so sudden. It's usually more a gradual thing. Can you give them up? Now, it would be nice to think we could just sort of stand up one day and say, hey, this doesn't work anymore. My mom was always mean to me. My wife's nice to me. I shouldn't treat her like that. But we all know from experience that it doesn't work so simply. That is, in the moment, you act based on your past experience. That's back to the schemata. Now, sometimes people talk about this as procedural memory. Sometimes people talk about it as the unconscious, the non-conscious. There are many different names for it. And I don't think any name is wrong. But I, I prefer a kind of more common language that says that that's one of the things we do in psychotherapy, which is we said, hey, that's normal. That's what we all do. But here's a chance in a safe place to stop, to think about the automatic patterns you have, whether we call them automatic thoughts, or here's the word, transference patterns, right? You're treating me as your therapist in a way that made sense from your past, because it's the way you treated your father, or the way your father treated you. But it doesn't make as much sense now, because I'm not your father. Um, skipping over about five years of analysis at that point, but, but you get the idea that that's what you're conveying. And it has to happen. You can't just sort of say it's going to happen. They'll look at you like you're crazy. But in fact, we do this in psychotherapy, and it's a way of modeling and teaching and enacting a different kind of relationship in the setting. Now, fun, funny enough, there's actually a therapy called schema therapy that does this. I don't mean to conflate that with my idea. That's a very specific brand name therapy developed by a guy in New York named Jeff Young, which is a nice therapy. My schema use of the word scheme and his use of the word scheme are, are different, but, but they, they take advantage of that. Uh, interpersonal therapy does it, working in the transference does it. And then finally, I'll just mention that even though I'm not going to talk more about it, I think we tell a story in therapy. That is, we co-construct, that is, the patient and therapist sitting together, tell a story about illness, about recovery, about psychopathology, 
And it may matter way less how true, in quotes, that story is, but that we have a coherent story that works for us, okay? And I think you, you may already be noticing that these three things I don't think of as categorical differences. I actually think of them as long, as long a continuum. They're all kinds of schemas in a way. This is a schema, an exposure. Elevator, bad, I'm going to die. That's a schema. It's a simple schema. This is a middle level kind of complexity schema. How do two people interact? This is a complicated schema. Now you've got the time element in there and how things develop over time, right? But there are these schemas exist and that's something else we do in therapy of all kinds. All right. So um, this is some brain imaging that we have to support that. Um, I'm just gonna close with one last thing. We got a lot of work to do, right? If, if anybody stands up and says that we now have neuroimaging evidence that tells us what to do in psychotherapy or tells us how to diagnose people, uh, we're wrong. It's just not true. Uh, they wished the DSM-5 um, uh, would have those things and it doesn't. And we're, we're at the same place in psychotherapy. I do not use my imaging data when I sit in the room with my patients. I would love to someday. We don't know when that's gonna happen. Is that 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, 100 years? People disagree, and the honest truth is I don't know. But you gotta at least have a plan for how you're gonna do it. And we do. We think about the circuitry that connects the frontal cortex, which is more the control mechanisms of the brain, and the temporal cortex, which we're hypothesizing as really more the, the parts of the brain that negotiate this difference between detail and global orientation. We think about that circuitry as being really important in how we navigate these things. And we're starting to look at those pathways because in, in, in a sense, remember, it's not phrenology. Phrenology says there's a bump on your head that's, that's the wisdom. And this is another bump that says that's cruelty or whatever. Um, the brain doesn't work like that. The brain is a complex set of circuits. So if you're going to look at things, you have to look at them in connection, in connectivity, rather than in individual spots. And that's what we're trying to do, but with this theory that frontotemporal connectivity is going to be very important in terms of this scheme of flexibility. You know, the brain is still an incredible mystery to us. What I've colored in here, this is, by the way, a flattened brain, which I like. So this is um, surface, what's called an inflated or blown up brain where you see the surface cortex, and then you make a couple cuts, not literally, but computer-wise, and you spread it all out, and this is what the cortex of just one hemisphere looks like. This is the left hemisphere, right? And I've colored in what we have a pretty good idea of how it works. Not perfect, but pretty good. We know how the visual cortex works, somatosensory cortex, the motor cortex, some audition and taste, um, and so on. But there's big parts of the brain we don't know how it works. We don't know how the temporal cortex works. We have relatively little idea how the prefrontal cortex and cingulate work, uh, and parts of the parietal and insula as well. So there's a lot of exciting things to be discovered, these grays to be filled in. Um, and, and I think you know, this is the time to do it, not by picking sides and picking brand names, because I don't think that ever gets you to the truth, but by trying to, to, to draw links between different fields, whether they be uh, cognitive neuroscience and psychoanalysis, or the humanities, or literature, or perspectives within any of those fields. And that's really what, to me, makes this so much fun. So I'm gonna uh, acknowledge a few people. Brad Peterson, my mentor, Susan Anderson. Kevin Oxner, a terrific neuroscientist at, at Columbia, has also been a big help. I've had lots of generous funding from NIH, from uh, Academy of Child Psychiatry, the American and the International Psychoanalytics, and the Sackler Institute for Developmental Psychobiology. And then thanks to a large number of students uh, who, this is just some of them, who've worked with me over the years and really done the, the actual work uh, for, for usually no pay, and my two daughters, Samantha and Lila. Thank you very much.
The Shulman Seminars and Lecture Series at Yale University are intended to introduce important topics in science and the humanities to a general audience. The preceding lecture by Andrew Gerber was delivered in the spring of 2012 in conjunction with the seminar Freud and Science in the 21st Century. The lecture took place in Yale's Whitney Humanities Center on March 5, 2013.